passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, um, this morning is our uh, last Sunday in 1 Samuel um, for a few months. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel 16. That's where we will be this morning. As you're doing that, I want to give you just a brief overview of what the next couple months will look like while I'm on sabbatical. Um, you'll notice in your, um, in your bulletin, we have the same insert that we included last week, just um, a couple questions that have been asked about um, what, what are the logistics of, of the next two months going to look like as, as my family and I are away on sabbatical. Um, so if you have, uh, read that, and then if you have uh, further questions, feel free to reach out um, and, uh, and ask um, me or, or our staff or our elders or deacons. And uh, our church, normally, uh, we, we go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. That's, that's what we've been doing with First Samuel um, this morning. And, uh, and yet, every now and then, we try to take a, a few weeks to just look at, at some various topics um, that uh, we feel like would be helpful to have a biblical perspective on as a church. And, and so that's what we're going to be doing over the next um, several weeks this summer. This summer we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about a wide variety of topics. So uh, some of those things um, are, are theological questions. What does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper? Something like that. Um, some of these uh, Sundays will be um, focused more on sanctification in the Christian life. So what does the Bible say about um, forgiveness? What does the Bible say about fighting temptation and, and other things like that? Um, so so while things are going to certainly look different uh, this Sunday, uh, or over the next several Sundays, um, one of the things that will remain the same is that uh, we will continue to be putting our finger in the text. That's kind of one of our, our mantras here at Crosswinds. Um, it really comes from the EFCA. When the EFCA, our denomination, was started in the 1880s, the rallying cry was, where stands it written? In other words, what does the Bible have to say about this particular subject? And so that's what we will be doing over the next uh, couple months. And then when I return um, from sabbatical in mid-August, we'll jump right back into 1 Samuel. We'll do it with a bang um, or with a thud, um, if you want to catch the, the pun there, uh, because we'll be looking at David and Goliath. So please laugh, because that was a really good joke. <laughs> Thank you for making me feel better. All right, 1 Samuel 16 is where we will be this morning. Um, we're going to be picking up uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. Now, 1 Samuel 16 um, is really just one coherent um, story, all looking at, at the anointing of King David. How does, how does David become the king of Israel? Even though he might not be the official king in the sense of, in the place of power, Saul still sits on the throne, how is he chosen by God, and how does God work to get David to prepare him to be the king? And so last week we looked at 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13, and we saw what I've kind of referred to as like the explicit anointing of David. This is how God explicitly chooses David to be the king. And this morning we're going to look at 13 through 23, and this is how God is at work behind the scenes getting David to this place where he will now, as we end this passage, be in the court of King Saul. He'll be really close to the king himself and how God is working behind the scenes to prepare David to be the king. 
And the rest of 1 Samuel, as we look at this book, is going to show this contrast between David and Saul. And that's certainly the case this morning. We saw last week that after Saul has has rejected God and his word, that God rejects him from being king, and so God anoints a new king, and that is David. David is the greatest king of the Old Testament, and what we'll see is that there's this, this contrast between David and his kingdom and Saul and his kingdom. But more than just a contrast between two kingdoms, we'll also see that there's this contrast between two spirits. We have David and the Holy Spirit, and Saul and this evil spirit, or our text will translate it as a harmful spirit. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to just basically work our way through this passage. It's a pretty straightforward passage. After we work our way through the passage, I want us to just consider what we can learn from Saul, how God is at work in Saul's life. What we can learn from David, how God is at work in David's life, and then finally, just overarching principle of how does God work in the world. Now, since we have a a relatively short passage this morning, um, we're going to read all of our texts this morning at the beginning, so I'd invite you to stand and please follow along either in your um, written copy of God's Word or on the screens um, as I read aloud uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, who is prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Would you pray with me? Father, as we consider your word this morning, we do ask that you would open our eyes to see what you would have us see from this passage. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and teach us and that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, if you were with us, uh, we ended with verse 13, and uh, we're actually starting with verse 13 again this morning because verse 13 is, is kind of the connective tissue between the two halves of chapter 16, and it shows us what God is doing here, the contrast between David and Saul. So let's go ahead and pick up again in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. 
Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So at David's anointing, what we have, the, we have the Holy Spirit coming and anointing David for the work of leading God's people. And remember what we talked about last week, that this is, this is a huge moment in the Bible. Because this moment points us to Jesus. It's the first time in the Bible that we see the Holy Spirit come and dwell within a person permanently. To this point, it's only been a temporary thing where God's Holy Spirit comes upon someone for a specific task. And we see that God is equipping his chosen king, he's equipping David to accomplish his purposes by the power of his spirit. And then we get to chapter 16, verse 14, the very next verse, and notice what we see. Even as the Holy Spirit is coming upon David, the text tells us that the Holy Spirit is leaving Saul. Now, it's important for us not to read into this statement New Testament categories about the Holy Spirit, about how God works through His Holy Spirit, about salvation, whether or not a person concludes their salvation. Just take this text for what it is saying. That this is the continuing uh, 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 fallout of God rejecting Saul as king because Saul has rejected God as king. So Saul has rejected God. He's rejected God's word. God rejects Saul as the king of his people. And part of the result of that, as the Holy Spirit falls on David for the kingship, now the Holy Spirit is removed from Saul, that Saul is no longer God's chosen, anointed king to lead God's people. Now, he'll still remain on the throne. He'll still remain in a position of power for probably at least a decade, and yet the Holy Spirit has been removed from him. But the situation gets even more dire when we get to the end of verse 14. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is surprising, isn't it? So what we see here is not only does God remove the Holy Spirit from Saul, but he also sends a harmful spirit, and some of your translations say evil spirit here in this passage, and he sends his spirit in order to torment Saul. So what's going on here? What's happening in this passage? Well, to unpack what's happening, I think there's two questions that we need to ask, and and those questions are simply what and why. So first, what is happening? What's going on here? What does the text tell us is happening with Saul and this harmful spirit or this evil spirit? Maybe more importantly is, what is this text not saying? So as we look at this text, notice that it doesn't say that it possesses Saul. So it's not saying that Saul is possessed in this moment. It's saying that he is tormented, that he is afflicted. We just got done with verse 13. Verse 13 tells us that the Holy Spirit comes, rushes upon David, and he's he's upon David from this day forward. We have the Spirit dwelling within David, and you would think if this contrast is happening between David and Saul, that it would say, well, the Holy Spirit is indwelling David, and this evil spirit is indwelling Saul. But that's not what it says. The text is very clear that this spirit is tormenting Saul. It doesn't tell us what exactly that looks like. It doesn't tell us what exactly that means. 
But in some way, there is a harmful spirit, an evil spirit that is afflicting Saul sent by God. So that's the what, and also the what not, if you will. Perhaps more importantly is the why. Why is God doing this with Saul? The text is very clear. This is a spirit that is sent from God. We'll look at the response of Saul's servants in a few moments, and we'll see that they say the exact same thing. This is a spirit that is sent from God. So why is God doing this? Well, I think, again, this makes sense in the context of the story of Saul that we have looked at so far in 1 Samuel. Why does God send a spirit to afflict Saul? Well, it's because, according to verse 14, the Holy Spirit has departed from Saul, and the Holy Spirit departs from Saul because he has rejected God and his word, and now God has rejected him as king. It's kind of summed up in in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 26, where it says this, And Samuel said to Saul, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. One of the things that we've seen over and over in Saul's life is this persistent pattern of rejecting God and his word, of rebelling against God's commands. And so because he has done that, God sends this evil spirit to torment, to afflict Saul as a form of judgment upon him for his sin. And that might be surprising to us, but consider that God virtually does the exact same thing with the people of Israel hundreds of years later. He doesn't use an evil spirit. He uses an evil nation. So we look at the time of the exile. After centuries of God's people rejecting God as king, God decides to use an evil nation, first Assyria and then Babylon, as his instrument of judgment upon the people of Israel and Judah. So this is what God does. If there's persistent rebellion against him, he sees fit sometimes to pour out judgment, and sometimes he will use evil nations, evil spirits to accomplish his purposes. Now, incidentally, this morning, I was reading in the book of Hosea, and Hosea is all about um, God's mercy and compassion upon his people in spite of his people's continued rejection of him. And I can't remember if I was, in, I was in Hosea 9, 10, and 11 this morning. I can't remember which chapter it was in. But in one of those chapters, it talks about how God is sending Israel's judgment through Assyria. And yet, this judgment is not just a form of judgment, but it's also meant to lead Israel back to God. That there is supposed to be repentance as a form of the judgment of Assyria being poured out upon God's people. And I don't think it's, it's too much to, to conclude that God's doing the exact same here. That God's desire for Saul in this moment is for Saul to repent. And so he's using this evil spirit, hoping that he will finally get Saul's attention. He's afflicting Saul as a form of judgment with the final purpose being this hope that Saul will repent. So that's what's taking place here in this passage. Now it's important for us to remember God is sovereign. God is completely in control. 
And for him to be completely in control, that means he's not only just in control of the good stuff, but he's also in control of the bad. And God, being God, uses the evil desires of evil men and women, even evil spirits, to accomplish his good purposes in the world. This is a theme we see throughout the Bible. So Joseph and his brothers, Joseph's brothers are jealous of Joseph and they sell him into slavery after deciding not to kill him. And at the end of the book of Genesis, after there's some form of reconciliation that takes place between the two uh, parties, Joseph's brothers are nervous that after his dad dies, that Joseph is going to put them to death. And this is what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So notice what this text says, that there is a very real desire from the brothers. They meant this action for evil, and yet God meant it for good. So God takes the evil desires of people and can use it for good. This is what we see at the cross as well. Peter, preaching to the crowds at Pentecost, says this about the, the heart desire of the people of Jerusalem at Jesus' crucifixion. It says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So notice again what this text is saying. This text is saying that Jesus was crucified by the crowds. He was, he was killed by the hands of lawless men. There's this very real evil desire from the Jews and the Romans that leads to Jesus being crucified. They wanted to do it. They delighted in it. And yet Peter also says in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 that this was a part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And we have to hold both of these Intention. We have to hold on to both of these. That this was absolutely a part of God's plan. And it was absolutely something that these people wanted to do. The crowds wanted to kill Jesus. It's not as though they, they looked at God's plan and said, well, we don't really want to, but someone's got to do it. Someone's got to put this Jesus to death so that God's plans and purposes can be accomplished. No, that's not at all what happens. They desire to put Jesus to death. And yet, in God's sovereign plan, God uses their evil desires to accomplish not just good, but the greatest good that has ever occurred in the history of redemption. And in a way, that's what's taking place here with Saul and this evil spirit. God is using the evil desires the evil actions of this spirit, and yet it's a part of his eternal plans and purposes. We just read the text a few moments ago, the entire text. Those plans and purposes are a part of God's plan to get David into the throne room of Saul, to prepare him to be the king. So God is at work. Even in the evil, he's using it for good. Look at verse 15. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now 
A harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. I think it's worth noting that we don't know how much time passes between verse 13 and verse 14. That there's almost certainly some sort of of time jump, time gap between the first half of this chapter and the second half of this chapter. I, I think that chapter 16, verses 14 through 23 actually take place after chapter 17. That the story of David and Goliath takes place before what we are seeing and reading this morning. And the, the author of 1 Samuel has, has actually orchestrated or, or ordered things, rather, in this book based off of themes rather than necessarily uh, what we would consider to be chronological order. And the theme that he's trying to, to pick up and pull out here is this theme of the Spirit at work preparing David to be God's king. And so, just as God anointed David through the power of the Holy Spirit in the first 13 verses, now we are seeing how God is at work getting David behind the scenes to be in the throne room of Saul to prepare him to be the king. There's some time that passes here. At any rate, at some point, Saul's servants, they, they notice that, um, that this is a harmful spirit that's been sent by God, that he's afflicted by this uh, evil spirit. And so they, they bring up this suggestion. They say, hey, we know that you're afflicted by this spirit, and we, we think that you should find a musician um, who can ward off this evil spirit through a liar. Let's go ahead and show the picture of what a liar is. If you're curious, um, this is... Um, the first ever uh, acoustic guitar is basically what it is. Uh, you would have uh, strings that would be um, found between the box at the bottom, which is where the, the music would, would resonate out from, and then from the top there, and, and of course, you know, different lengths of strings, different types of strings um, would pr- produce different notes. And so this is what they're saying, hey, we, we want you to, or we think you should go find someone who's skilled at playing the lyre, um, this uh, form of uh, stringed instruments, and um, when that is played, we think the evil spirit will disappear. And, and Saul says, hey, you know what? Great idea. We'll come back to the, the suggestion of the servants here in a moment. But we see in, in verse 17, Saul agrees. So verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now, I don't necessarily expect you to, to catch this parallel quite yet, but Saul, he says, provide for me, and he says, I want you to find me someone who can do this. Now, let's go ahead and throw up 16 verse 1, God's words to Samuel at the beginning of this chapter. The Lord said to Samuel, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So don't miss the irony here. That God, in his plans, has said, I am going to provide for myself a new king who is going to replace my rejected king, Saul. And then he he sends Samuel to Bethlehem, and and Samuel anoints David as king. And, And then we get to the second half of this chapter, and Saul uses the exact same language. He says, find me someone, provide for me someone who can help me. And in both cases, the one that will be provided by God is David. And God's working behind the scenes here. 
He's using his chosen king and he's, he's getting ready to replace his rejected king, Saul. And the chosen king, David, will be the key to relief from this affliction that the rejected king, Saul, is experiencing. That's what we see happens next, verse 18. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So one of Saul's servants knows just the man. It is David. All of these descriptions that we see here, they're positive. The most important one, without a doubt, is this description that the Lord is with him. This is a common refrain that we see throughout 1 Samuel, even into 2 Samuel. Describing David, he has success, he is faithful, he accomplishes God's purposes, not because of any innate ability within him, but because the Lord is with him. This is the most important part of this description of who this David is. Verse 19, Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who was with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my eyes. If you're interested, sometime this week, open up to 1 Samuel 9 and 10 and then have another passage open or another Bible open to 1 Samuel 16. There's a number of parallels between chapters 9 and 10 and the anointing and and the ascension of Saul to the kingship and the anointing and the ascension of David to the kingship here in chapter 16. God is working behind the scenes in both places. God uh, anoints through Samuel in both places. The Spirit rushes upon both men in both places. Another thing that's really interesting is the mention of the, the donkey and the skin of wine that is, that is mentioned here. This is mentioned earlier. I don't think we should read too much into this beyond just the author of 1 Samuel, God is trying to show us that David is replacing Saul. That God is at work behind the scenes to get his chosen king, David, into the throne room of Saul. That's what we see by the time we get to the final verse of this chapter, verse 23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul... David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Again, we see this massive contrast between David and Saul. David, the Holy Spirit, Saul afflicted by this evil spirit. Whenever this spirit would afflict Saul, David would play the lyre and the spirit would depart from him. Notice the, the parallel, again, between the beginning of this story in verse 14 and the end of this story in verse 23. In verse 14, the Spirit is departing from Saul because God has rejected him. And at the end of this story, this evil spirit is departing from Saul because of the work of God's chosen king, David. There's this massive contrast here between David 
what God's doing through David and Saul, this man that God has rejected, that, that stubbornly refuses to repent. Massive contrast between the two kingdoms, the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Saul. So with that in mind, this contrast in mind, I just want us to, to go back and just consider briefly what this text is teaching us by looking at the example of Saul, looking at the example of, of David, and then also considering how does God work in the world still to this day. So let's first look at Saul. What did I say? What did we talk about at the beginning of our time? About why does God send this spirit to torment Saul? Well, it's because this is a form of, of judgment upon Saul for his persistent disobedience, his persistent rebellion against God. And yet, because God is gracious... Because God is patient, or patient, this judgment is not an end in and of itself, but it is meant to lead to repentance. So, go back to verse 15. The, the servants of Saul, they come to Saul with this statement. They say, And Saul's servants said to them, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So even if Saul has no idea what's going on, even if Saul is blind to what is happening, his servants make it explicit. They come to him and say, hey, you know what, uh, we, we think, we think that, that there's a spirit that God has sent that's, that's afflicting you, that's, that's tormenting you. Now, here's a question. Stop right there. What should Saul's response be if that is the message that he has told? That he's been given this message, hey, God has sent a spirit to afflict you. What should his response be? We should say, why, right? What, what's going on here? Why? And it should lead to this, this self-introspection from Saul. It should lead to this moment and say, hey, what is God trying to teach me here in this moment? It should, it should lead him to examine his heart, examine his life, examine like the habits and the patterns of his life that we've seen all the way back since 1 Samuel 9, all the way to 1 Samuel 15. Should lead him to look back at his life and, and, and realize, hey, you know what, God? I've been persistently, habitually rejecting you. I've been rebelling against you. And what does Saul do instead? Well, his servants were right on in verse 15. But notice what they say in verse 16. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. This is bad advice. It's, it's dealing with the symptoms and not the, the disease. It's addressing the, the minor while ignoring the major, the heart issue, the, the main problem here. Saul doesn't need a musician. He needs a heart change. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need music. He needs repentance. Now, what we see in this passage is, is David certainly does help Saul in his affliction, but I think that's less about what God is actually doing uh, in general and more a testament of how God is uniquely at work in David's life. How he is at work, how, how David is the one that the Lord is with him, as we saw in this passage in verse 18. That God is with David. And, and what's more, we can reasonably guess what type of music David is playing on the lyre right there? 
You look at the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, 75 of them at least are written by David. Surely some of them had their origins in the court of Saul while he's playing and trying to help Saul in his affliction. So David is is playing worship music and God graciously relieves Saul of this affliction through the ministry of David. And yet at the same time, it's not dealing with a core issue here. Not dealing with the the heart of the issue. Saul's steadfast rebellion against God and and against God's ways. And so as we consider Saul in this passage, it's it's a refrain that we've used over and over again as we've been looking at Saul, but I think it's, it's important to repeat once more, the heart of this warning from Saul is simply this, don't ignore the danger of a rebellious and disobedient heart. Don't ignore the danger of a rebellious and disobedient heart. Now, I'm not saying that if you are persistent in disobedience, persistent in ignoring God, that that will lead you to being tormented by an evil spirit. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying that there's not a place for physical treatment to physical ailments. It's it's the problem is that this is an explicitly spiritual issue that Saul's servants and Saul himself decide to to deal with on a very physical way. When I look at Saul, I see that just like Saul, we find it a whole lot easier to deal with the small things, the symptoms, rather than the hard work of heart change, the hard work of repentance, and so we'll, we'll spend all of our effort to make ourselves feel better focusing on just these small things when there's this massive issue in our lives, this heart change that needs to take place in our lives. And we'll ignore that, but focus on the small. Don't miss the warning of Saul in this passage. There's a danger of persistent rebellion, and disobedience to God's word. Second, consider David. 1 Samuel 16 is all about the anointing of David, and yet, how long does it take until David becomes the king? It's probably at least a decade. And then after that, he's only the king of Judah for seven years until he becomes the king of a united Israel. And if you think all of those years of waiting were easy for David because he was God's chosen king, just flip through the rest of 1 Samuel. David, as he walked as a part of God's plan, as he tried to remain faithful to God's plan, that meant that he had to wait, but not only wait, that there was a whole lot of suffering and pain and hardship. He spent years of his life running from Saul because Saul was trying to kill him. His life was constantly in danger. There were not just days and weeks and months, but there were years where it looked like It was up for debate as to whether or not God was going to keep his promise. 
that David would become the king. And yet in all this, we are reminded that God's purposes are accomplished on his timetable, that God's purposes are accomplished in his ways and not in ours. That's our second truth, that David's David teaches us that God's purposes, God's plans, they they are accomplished on his timetable. They're accomplished in his ways and not in mine. From an outside perspective, it looks like it would have been so much better for Israel if God would have just made the switch to David right away. Just get rid of Saul's clean start. Imagine how much better it would have been if David were not just the king for 40 years, but he was the king for 50. How much better off would God's people have been? We would be wise to take the lesson of David here in this passage to heart. Because God uses the suffering God uses the hardship, God uses the waiting that David experiences for those several years, mainly all of these things at the hand of Saul. And they were instrumental in developing his character. They were instrumental in preparing him to be the type of king that would honor God, to lead God and God's people back to the king of glory, God himself. Is it possible that God's doing the same thing with you? That if you find yourself in a season of hardship and affliction and waiting, and and you're wondering, where are you, God? How long, O Lord, as, as we read from Psalm 13 earlier this morning? Is it possible that God is using those things to make you more like Jesus, even in the waiting, even in the suffering? Take the the lesson of David here in this passage to heart, that God knows what he is doing. God knows what he's doing a lot better than you and I do. That God doesn't make mistakes. And that includes even in the valleys of our own lives, that God's purposes will be accomplished. Maybe not on our timetable, maybe not in the way that we think they should be accomplished, that he should do it. But again, he's God and, and we are not. So if we find ourselves in affliction, if we find ourselves waiting, remember that God is still committed to his plans and his purposes. And you can be assured that one day he will accomplish them and he will do so perfectly. So don't miss that lesson from David. And finally, we consider God himself. Do you see how God is at work here in this passage behind the scenes that that there's nothing outside of God's plan, that, that there's nothing that God doesn't rule over from the most massive events in world history down to, my kids love to blow dandelion seeds all over the yard. It's, it's infuriating. And, and, and yet... Every single one of those seeds, God knows exactly where it's going and he, he, he orchestrates it. He is sovereignly in control of all things, that there is nothing outside of his control. Several weeks ago, as we were looking at the anointing of Saul to become the, the king over God's people, we, we talked a lot about providence. And, and um, after the, that sermon, I, I started reading this book called Providence. I probably should have read it beforehand, um, but... 
read this book, uh, started reading this book on providence. It's by John Piper, and, and I, I love the definition he gives for providence. He says, providence is purposeful sovereignty. And I love that. It's so simple, and yet it's so profound. Sovereignty refers to the fact that God is completely and utterly in control, and yet we don't just confess that as Christians, that God is completely in control, but also that God has a purpose, that there is a plan to everything that God does. And that's exactly what we see here, that God has an end goal, and he is structuring and ordering every single thing toward that goal. And he is working that goal out in every single thing. That he is totally sovereign, but he is also completely purposeful and intentional in everything he does. And that includes the good, and it includes the bad. That's what we see in this passage, that God has a plan, that God is in control. And I think that's a message that we need to be reminded of regularly. As we consider what we can learn from God and, uh, about God in this passage, I think it's this, that God is in control of both the good and the bad. But not only that, that he has a plan. And that all things God is doing is a part of that plan. When you experience the highest high, when you find yourself walking through the lowest valley, God is working all those things as a part of his eternal plan, his eternal purposes. You may not grasp what God is doing right now in your life. You may not be able to fathom how God can use this moment of your life to accomplish his plans in your life. So remember the message of this passage, that God is in control of both the good and the bad, but not just that God is in control, but that God has a plan. Back in December, um, m most of you know I was, I was in um, Liberia doing some work with uh, some pastors. And uh, as we were working through um, this curriculum, one of the things that we kept coming back to was um, uh, God's character. And the phrase that we used over and over and over again was that God is sovereign, wise, and good. And I love that. Didn't realize it at the time, but God was preparing me for when my dad unexpectedly died a few months later. And as I'm driving to southwest Iowa to, to see my mom, got four hours in the car, I'm praying, and I'm just running through scripture that I've got memorized, and, and then also just reciting that over and over and over again. I got a sovereign, he's wise, and he's good. If God were sovereign but not wise and good, that's not good news. If God is wise, but he's not sovereign and good, that's not good news either. If God is good, but he's not sovereign and wise, that's not good news. But the Bible shows us that God is sovereign, wise, and good, and that is good news. 
because we can rest assured that in the waiting, in the valleys of life, even when we don't understand what God is doing, we can trust that he still is in control and he still has a plan. Let's latch on to that this week. Learn the lesson of Saul. Be, be on guard against this persistent rebellion against God. Learn the lesson of David. That God is at work and he's going to do it on his timetable. He's going to do it in his way, not necessarily yours. But the reason these things are good news is because God has a plan. And he's sovereign. He can bring that plan to fruition according to his timetable, not our own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you are good that you are sovereign, and that you are wise. We thank you that that's true not just of um, the good times in our lives, but it's also true in the bad. That you are worth trusting on the highest mountaintop and in the lowest valley. God, we ask that you would help us be a people who constantly remind ourselves of that truth. Thank you, God for your word, how you reveal yourself and who you are and how you work. You reveal these things to us who so desperately need to hear from you. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.